I want to begin with a, a, a rather general um, introduction and then move from that general introduction to a specific consideration of the text that's before us in Jeremiah. As the reformers scrambled for a definition of the church, trying to find some stable stone upon which to start to understand the nature and the function of the church, they, they, they drove back to, to, the, to, the, to the simplest place they could get. And that would become their starting point. For them, that, that starting point was that the church exists in some measure anywhere that you find the sincere preaching and hearing of the word of God. And that's a starting point. And that's where we are today. We've maintained that, and we believe that to be true. But it presents for us a twofold task for the moment. It's the sincere preaching and hearing of the Word of God. This is, this is, a, this is not just an, an exchange of information that's taking place. We anticipate a divine interaction in that process. And in sincerity, when we speak of sincerity, it's not just, I hope to do a good job. But it's an earnest pressing in on the task. And it's not just the task of preaching, which is, is, is an endeavor in itself. Because after all, I mean, my voice is competing with the voice of your crockpot. I can't win that one. Okay? I mean, I'm just, it's not going to happen. And now some of you have sheer panic because you forgot to turn it on. You, you, there are just certain things that you, 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 know, you, you, you press in and you, you, you work at it. And there are just certain things that you can't overcome. And then there's challenges that you have. I don't like his voice. Where did he get that tie from? I mean, you've, got, you've got to overcome. You have to overcome that so that in this singular moment, we have the convergent not only of the sincere preaching but the sincere hearing, you have a task today, as do I, in the hope that in that singular moment when we press in together, the Holy Spirit shows up and He presses His Word into our hearts. And then we walk out of here, out of here, with the effect that is intended via the Word of God to have taken place. And that effect from this text that we're giving consideration today is that we will march out those doors and we will boast. That we will boast. Not in our riches and not in our strength and not in our wisdom, but in our God. That's what the call of the hour is for. So from that general, now we've move into the specific text at hand, which is Jeremiah 9, 23-24, where the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to the people of God. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. 
But let him who boasts, boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Oh, Father, we have prepared ourselves for this hour, both in the preaching and the hearing of your word. And we have, we have gone, as proverbially speaking, Father, as far as our human efforts can take us. And now we confess before you, the host of heaven, that, that we need you. We need you because we don't boast in you. Our tendency is to boast in everything else. And this we confess. And we ask that you would send your spirit in accordance with your purposes and your plans to interweave in, into the fabric of our words and our hearing this day. That at the conclusion of the allotted time, that delight in you will rise in our hearts and proceed out of our mouths to a world that needs to know how great you really are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn back a few chapters to chapter 2 of Jeremiah, you really get the context for really the book and the statement that is being made. In chapter 2 and verse 13... Jeremiah, as the mouthpiece of God, says this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's amazing. In fact, within that context, in that section... He says, we should be appalled at this. This is unbelievable that such a thing has taken place. But it is where Israel was. You're familiar. I wasn't until I came to Kentucky with what really what a cistern was. We looked at, we're looking at houses and they say, oh yeah, the water delivery comes every, you know, periodically. And I said, what? What are you talking about? A water delivery. Yeah, there's a holding tank down here that's got water in it. I mean, you got to fill that thing up. Like, well, now that's awkward. I mean, I'm just used to going, you know, and turning on the tap and water comes. It flows freely. But that's what a cistern is. And the problem with cisterns is that they break. That's what the text says. They break. And they don't hold water anymore. Their usefulness is gone. And the text is saying this is kind of ironic. This is kind of strange. Why would you build in a location that required a cistern that has to be filled continually because it leaks, as opposed to over here where there is an artesian well that is just bubbling up continually? There is no ever any need to collect water because it's always present. 
And that's the contrast that's going on. And it's a contrast that, that lies behind the text that we have read. Applied to our text, the, the cisterns that had been dug out was cisterns of their own wisdom and their own strength and their own wealth. And that is where they were trying to live their life from. That's what they were boasting in. And God says, that, that's going to run out. It's broken. It's not going to sustain you. Rather, what you should boast in is you should boast in your God. Now, this is not just an ancient problem. It's actually a universal one that transcends all people, all ethnic groups, and all times. We are, have the same challenge before us. That challenge of forsaking the living fountain of God in whom we should delight... And digging out for ourselves some measure of significance in this world. Whether it be riches, or whether it be strength, or whether it be wealth. This is a universal issue. And the text that we have read in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, really it represents a single twofold imperative that is proportionally related You see, the more we boast in one, the less we will boast in the other. The imperative is to refrain from boasting as well as a call to actually boast. Now, mind you that when he says, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his wealth... Let not a rich man boast of his riches. That's not a call to be dumb, weak, and poor. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the goal is to divest yourself of your intellect. It's not to divest yourself of your wealth to go around and be poor. It's not to just become weak. It's rather to understand the priority of those things in relationship to the knowledge of God. Now, the reason that we should not boast in wisdom, strength, and wealth primarily is because they fade away. Now, that is self-evident. It was evident in the life of Israel, and it's evident in our time as well. Wisdom fades. It really does. You see, Aristotle was overturned by Louis Pasteur. Aristotle had taught him for a thousand years or so. They had believed that life spontaneously, boom, popped up. And then Louis Pasteur said, well, let's get a mason jar. And, well, maybe it wasn't a mason jar. But he he took a jar and and he set up an experiment and he demonstrated, you know what? Stuff just doesn't pop out of thin air. And Aristotle's wisdom that had stood for a thousand years was turned over in an instant. Ptolemy and Copernicus. I mean, Ptolemy's wisdom was overturned by Copernicus. Again, for thousands of years, we had believed that this was a geocentric universe. It revolved around us. The guy by the name of Copernicus came along and said, you know what, guys? 
you're wrong. It doesn't. This is heliocentric. We revolve around the sun. By the way, that didn't go very well for him. But nonetheless, the wisdom flipped. So we don't trust in wisdom. It does, now, you don't abandon it. You can keep searching. And, and you do realize that, that medical wisdom, thank the Lord, has flipped. Right? You know, for thousands of years, they thought the way to cure you was to let out some blood. You're sick? Hey, that's a pint. You know, whoa, I don't know who came up with that idea, but somebody thought that was a brilliant idea. You're sick? We'll just let some blood out. And modern medicine came in and said, you know what, you don't need to do that. In fact, we might need to put some in. So we don't, we don't boast in wisdom. Wisdom has its place. But it's not eternal. Strength fades. It really does. You remember Nadia Komenich? Remember that Russian gymnast? Captured the world's attention. Perfect 10. Man, that's old stuff now. I mean, America has athletes doing that with broken ankles. Muhammad Ali. Remember what he boasted? I am the greatest. You were the greatest. You're not anymore. Remember a guy by the name of Michael Jordan? Do you know that the other night, LeBron James dunked in his face? Took the basketball, went the length of the court, with one hand raised up to dunk the ball. His eyes were firmly fixed on Michael Jordan sitting there. Boom! Done. Era over. Strength fades. Riches fade. Names like Biltmore, Rockefeller, and Vanderbilt that took an entire, that built wealth and riches over an entire life. They've been replaced by names like Gates, Zuckerberg, and Buffett, who, for Zuckerberg, I mean, overnight. You say, well, who's Zuckerberg? Well, Facebook, right? Overnight. He this this young kid. Boom. But you know what? His wealth will diminish. But it's not just this call to not boast in things. It's not just because these things fade away. But it's also because they detract from our God. The call is not to just not boast, but it is actually to boast and to boast in God. Notice our text says, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. This is an unabashed, unashamed call to bragging, boasting. And the one for whom it is due to boast in the fact that we, as the people of God, we understand and know our God. And too often we 
we're timid and tepid. And it just we uncertain and unconfident. We move out into the world like we've got nothing to say. Like our God is is like is like Oz behind the curtain. We really don't want it pulled back because then we'll be discovered. It's not our God. Our God is no pretend wizard behind a curtain. Our God has challenged you. He says, you need to know me. You need to know me. And when you know me, you'll boast about me. And when you boast about me, then the world will understand what you know. Now, our text specifically, the, the Lord challenges His people he says, I want you to know three things about me. Now, there's much. There's, God is infinite, and so there's much to be known about God. But here he zeroes in on these three things. He says, I want you to know these three things. He says, I want you to know that I exercise loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. What is loving kindness? What, 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 what does that mean? I think it's best captured, uh, it's captured in multiple two places. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed by in front of him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions of sin. So when he mentions loving kindness, it has to do with God's faithfulness to forgive. Brian's teaching through Jonah on Sunday nights. And he'll get to chapter 4 where, where Jonah is just outright livid over this issue. That God is loving kind. He says, is this not what I said before? This is why I didn't want to come here to start with. I am angry. Because I know the kind of God you are. You are a, a God of loving kindness. And you will forgive when people repent. That's, no, that's strange coming out of the mouth of the prophet of God. But nonetheless. So loving kindness, it has multi-dimension. But, but it has to do with being forgiven. And it says that he, God exercises this on the earth. He forgives those who dwell on the earth. He says, I want you to know that about me. More than that, I want you to brag about that. I want you to boast in that. <clears throat> and then there's justice. What is justice? God, how, what is exercising justice on the earth look like? Well, be mindful that the exercising of justice by God is not a delight in revenge. Okay, that's that's what we do. That's why we are we are pro, we are really prohibited, other than the government, from exercising justice. It's vigilantism. You know why? Because there's few human beings who can draw the line that separates justice and revenge. But God is. He is able to, and He does that. He He brings about justice. Justice is. Not a delight in revenge, but it is what is proper. It is the setting right of that which is wrong. This is something that every one of us understands and desires except for ourselves. We want criminals punished, 
But we are firmly convinced that we are not criminals. So, so God through, through Jeremiah says, I want my people to know this about me, that I exercise loving kindness, that I exercise justice, and then I exercise righteousness. And righteousness is the setting and maintaining the standard for things like truth and ethics and morality. It's the basis of, of justice itself. To exercise righteousness is to do this with beauty and symmetry and proportion and appropriateness. It is to do the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And this is what God does. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to see the righteousness of God at play in the earth. But now it gets ramped up a notch. Because notice what our text says. It's not just that God does these things and that He wants you to know these things. But notice the text. It says in verse 24, He says that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For notice, for I delight in these things. God delights. But think, let's just stop for a minute. I don't know what our conception of God is, is that He's just some stoic, um, uh, uh, stoic statue that's static, that, ha- that has no movement, that has no passion, no ethos. But this text contradicts that. This text says that God delights. Takes joy in something. The idea of delighting has the basic meaning of feeling great favor towards something. The object solicits favor by its own intrinsic qualities. The subject, this being the case of God, is easily attracted to it because it is, it is desirable. The subject gives expression to his delight in a joyful attitude and conduct. Now, there's one place in the Old Testament that that I think gives us a great window on what it means or to understand what it means for God to take delight in something and how He expresses that delight. It's not just a contained delight, but it is an expressed delight. And that is found in Zephaniah 3.17. Listen to what listen to what Zephaniah says about God. He says, "The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy." Now the phrase shouts of joy is a Hebrew way of describing singing. What this text tells us is that when God is delighted, He sings. And He sings songs about His people and about His activity in this world. So you put this all together, and it's not just that God exercises loving kindness in the earth, but He delights to. How do you view God? Do you think when you come to God... In repentance, 
asking for forgiveness, that God sits back and says, you know, I want to think about that a minute. Ah, I'm not so sure about that. You know, uh, okay, this one, uh, all right, uh, one more time. No, that is not how God forgives. When we come in repentance asking for forgiveness, He says, what? Yes! In fact, I'm going to write a song for you and I'm going to sing it over you because I delight in forgiving you. The same is true with justice. The same is true with righteousness. He sings songs over His people and over these qualities. This is our God. Now the question then obviously arises, <clears throat> what, does it, what does it mean to boast? How do we, how do we translate that? And how, do we, how, do we, how do we actually fulfill this? Well, boasting, it, what boasting simply is, is the expression of words that have been generated by the desires of our heart. By the values of our heart. Our hearts hold things near and dear. We relish in, in, in things. And that pressure builds up. And the greater the desire, the intensity of the value begins to boil up within us. And that containment will not cease. And then all of a sudden, we burst forth with words that go out and express what's in our heart. And, we, and this is not a learned technique. This is natural. Every one of us in this room right now today boasts. We do. Right? What are the things that we boast about? Well, it's very simple. We may not all boast about the same thing, but it's what's in your heart. It's emerging. Whether it be UK basketball. UGA football, go dogs. Whether it be that I got to go to a particular concert or a particular venue, got the new car, the new clothes, the, the new home, the new degree. We all do this. He said, then why? And, and this, is, this is the tough point. This is, it becomes, it's going to come back on us here. So then the question is, why do we not boast in our God? Because we don't know Him. Because to know Him is to love Him. To love Him is to have our hearts filled with His delights and desires, which then yield out to the world. Hey! Hey! Let me... Let me tell you about our God. He is awesome. Well, what's so awesome about your God? Man, He forgives sins. He does justice. He sets the broken things right. 
So what does this sound like? It can take on a lot of different forms. But I want to quickly show you how it takes how this takes place, what this looks like in the scripture. The Apostle Paul, on three occasions, appears to be reaching back to Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24 and brings it forward into his own life to describe himself, to describe what he boasts in. It happens in First and Second Corinthians. It, and, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians right now. It happens also in Galatians 6.14, where the Apostle Paul says, he says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Hmm. Paul says, I, I, I am going to boast. Here's what I'm going to boast about. I'm going to boast about the cross. He said, well, why is he doing that? Now, he's ex- that's, a, that's an inferential uh, reference. There is a specific reference, a uh, uh, in- in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, or yeah, one thirty one, he says, "So that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord." And then in two two, he says, "For I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." And I submit to you that the boasting of the cross is the one way in which we can boast in all three dimensions of our God singularly in a single moment. Now let me show you that. Look at Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. This is, this is why Paul, in fulfillment of... Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 picks the cross as the, in the proclamation of that cross as the means to fulfill the call of boasting in Jeremiah. Here's what he says. Romans 3, 25. Whom God displayed, speaking of Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his righteousness, for in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, let me show you real quick. Some of it's obvious. The reference to righteousness is obvious, right? There it is. The cross is a demonstration of God's righteousness. Why is God's righteousness being called into question? Because notice the last part. He passed over the sins previously committed. That's a reference to forgiveness. God forgave sins, took great delight in forgiving sins, sang songs about forgiving sins. And that didn't go well with some people. Didn't go well with Jonah. So how are you still righteous? Okay, so there's the righteousness and the forgiveness. It's because of propitiation. Propitiation is the act of justice. The doing of justice in the earth. The punishing of the Son of God on our behalf. The cross is the one event in human history whereby God simultaneously with beauty, 
symmetry, proportion, and appropriateness exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. So how do you boast about your God? You go out and you tell somebody the gospel. And you have just boasted. And if you will put a little vim and vigor in it, if your energies will be ramped up by your own contemplation of your own forgiveness at the sake of Christ for God's glory, it will actually sound convincing. And it will actually begin to approach what Jeremiah is calling for of boasting in God. To proclaim the gospel is the act of boasting in the knowledge of God. It not only includes the information, but the rejoicing in it. It is a call to leave behind the wisdom, strength, and wealth of this world to embrace Jesus, who is the demonstration of the pleasure of God in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, resulting in the forgiveness of sins, which God takes great pleasure in doing for the sake of His pleasure and mercy, resulting in the praise of His righteousness. When will we boast in the cross? When we see the worth of the knowledge of God. When we see that, then the world will be crucified to us. It is the seeing, the worth of the knowledge of God, that we devalue the wisdom, strength, and riches of this world. And they will die in proportion to the rise in the value of the knowledge of God. The first step in this is not to say, I hate riches, but to acknowledge, hey, I love riches. But God is greater than that. And let me go find him. And then that is all put into its place. When we start to do that, then we will, with the Apostle Paul, boast in the cross. Then we will tell others of the worth of Jesus. Then we will surrender our minds to be used to write books and songs and letters for the glory of God. Then we will not grow weary in working so that others may know Him. Then our banking accounts will decrease, not because we've invested in our own pleasure, but because we have spent our money on the pleasure of God, which is men knowing that He is the one who takes pleasure in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, resulting in Him being praised, and the Salvation of sinners who will then boast in their God. But now we're at a crossroads. I have said everything that I know to say. I've given you everything. There's there's nothing else. That's it. I have sincerely sought to preach. The word of the living God. And we're left at faith. And here's the problem. C.S. Lewis captured this so well in an essay he wrote on the weight of glory. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like 
an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. At the end of the day, we don't think God's anything to boast about. We just need to be honest about that. Don't recoil from that. God, God already knows that. But in that, in that acknowledgement, hear, hear our God challenging us, inviting us. Hey, 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 come here, come here. I'll show you something. I'll show you who I am. What I'm like. And we just cannot, in our earthly, sin-tainted minds, believe that God, in His person, in His activity in the world, is greater than my 401k, than my sports team. Then my relationship is a question of faith. It just is a question of faith. Do we fundamentally believe that God is worth boasting about until the Holy Spirit flips that over in our hearts? We'll walk out of this hall today and say, well, now that was an interesting address. What are we having for dinner? I don't know. Who's on? Who's who's playing this afternoon? I hope to catch that. I hope they win. May God save us by 